Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things it can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Fulda, and today we're going to talk about biotechnology outreach in universities, namely at the University of Wisconsin. It took a little bit of time for me to realize that uh, that Paul Vincelli, who was the other um, host of the podcast, that... I thought he was the only person really working in biotechnology outreach specifically. And then I remembered an old friend, uh, Tom Zinnen, Dr. Zinnen from uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. How's it going, Tom? Going very well, Kevin. Yeah, so Tom is a a biotech policy and outreach specialist at UW-Madison, works within the cooperative extension system of the state of Wisconsin. And uh, his main job is biotechnology, well, is, is more kind of just science education outreach, right, Tom? Uh, yeah, using biotechnology is the starting point. And what are some of the other um, topics that you normally have to cover these days, especially in Wisconsin? Well, I tend to do things that are in life sciences um, in general. So over the course of my career, we've had things. We, you know, I started with bovine growth hormone back in 1991, but then we had um, human embryonic stem cells and the Human Genome Project. Uh, so there's, and then now CRISPR. So there's been a series of different things throughout the 27 years I've been here that, uh, are topics beyond agricultural biotechnology. And then I lead a, or organize a public science seminar called Wednesday night at the lab every Wednesday night, 50 times a year. And that runs the full gamut of science, including the social sciences and history of science, um, physical sciences, life sciences, so that's the kind of thing that I get to do. That's actually a really cool idea. And a reason, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because last year I found myself changing my appointment from mostly research and teaching to research and extension and uh, really trying to fulfill more of a role in biotechnology extension and uh, looking, at, looking for creative ideas. And I, I love the idea of Wednesday night at the lab. So what kind of people come into that? The phrase I use is uh, mostly they're active retirees with college degrees. Um, and we started this back in uh, about this time in 2005. We piloted it and and got a little bit of funding from the Wisconsin Idea Fund and were able to start it on February 26th of 2006. And we've been doing it every Wednesday night, 50 times a year since. Um, and we started it in uh, conjunction with the retirees association on campus. So everybody's welcome. Um, but those are the folks who tend to come and we average about 60 people an evening. So are you kind of preaching to the choir a little bit? I mean, do you get any of the Willie street co-op crowd coming in to talk about science? No, I think you're accurate in saying this is preaching to the choir. These are very highly motivated, interested people in science. Um, and as I'm fond of saying, 
can't ignore the choir if you're a parson. Um, that's not the only thing I do, but you ignore the choir at your own peril. That's your base. And I looked at it as a, um, an act of hospitality because I looked around and I saw what the arts were doing in music and theater and uh, galleries and, of course, what athletics does. And our stuff in science uh, was episodic at best. We didn't have reliable um, things that we could do in science or that we were doing in science. And so that's part of what Wednesday night at the lab was, is um, reliable routine. If it's Wednesday night, it's Wednesday night at the lab mindset. It's a really good idea to just with that regularity and attracting that kind of a crowd. I mean, do you remember, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, but do you remember a time that, I don't know if you gave a talk there or not, but you and I were at an event in 2001 that they held at a church um, with respect to um, like a genetic engineering information thing. Do you remember this? Um, was that the one at the Lutheran Church? I think so, over by um, uh, by the Barrymore Theater over in uh, Monona, towards Monona there. Um, I can't remember exactly, but um, keep going. Well, you, you, you were there, I believe, and that you and I were there and talking about uh, genetic engineering to a, uh, mostly a Willie Street co-op crowd. And, and for folks who don't know, this is a, uh, a, a grocery store in town. It's got a really nice neighborhood vibe. It's a really good place, but they have some um, rather different ideas about, you know, about technology and farming. And back when I was there, that was where I really cut my teeth on um how to talk to people about science by doing it horribly wrong. <laughs> and I, I, just, I was curious if you remembered that night at all. Um, no, not crisply. So <laughs> if you can remind me some more, that would be great. Mate. Oh, I can tell you what I did wrong. I, I was, I showed the, a crowd of people from the grocery store pictures of binary vectors. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, but it is, is that kind of, um, how, how, what have, what is doing this for so long taught you about the way you interact with the public? Like what's the best way to help hold their hand through a complicated topic in science? Well, one of the things I do when I give talks to the public, especially to uh, people who aren't warmly regarding whatever I'm talking about is to offer them the opportunity to ask questions first. And I explicitly say this is part of the cooperative extension approach. You know, usually the Q&A is at the end. Um, but I'd rather, you know, did you come here with ideas or questions or concerns? You can state them now. If I can address them as I give my talk, I will. If I can't, I'll tell you that I can't. Um, and then it helps start it as a uh, more of a dialogue, uh, conversation back and forth, because they get to participate in uh, what the topics are. And the other thing I like doing is giving a talk where there's some place, either a blackboard or those white sticky sheets of paper or whatever, so that I can write down what people have said and posted. It's, you know, everybody uses PowerPoints, and I do too, but you can't easily put up people's ideas and then have those ideas echo throughout the 20 or 40 or 60 minutes of um, the talk or the Q&A. And it's little things like that, I think, that help um, set a tone. It's not perfect. It won't work all the time. Uh, but at least lets people know um, that they can 
direct the direction of the uh, talk. And that's from the get go. It's a really good strategy because so much of what we have learned in the last, you know, 20, 25 years about science communication really boils down to starting with listening and the idea of understanding people's concerns. And I don't normally do that at these kinds of conferences, but I think I'll start to incorporate that same kind of approach. And what other um, major ways have you been able to interact with the public other than, say, the uh, Wednesday night at, um, science uh, approach or Wednesday night at the lab? The Wednesday night at the lab approach, what other things do you do to uh, actively engage outreach in biotechnology? Well, there's a couple of things, but remind me to go back to your point about listening. Okay. Um, well, let me do the exploration station idea. You know, people like doing booths or whatever you call it. And we specifically call it an exploration station. I don't think um, we invented it, but my colleague Cheryl Redman started using it probably 15, 20 years ago. And not only does it rhyme, but it emphasizes this is not about explanation. It's about exploration. And it's about a, a, a conversation that you have back and forth with whomever you're working with. So these are exhibits at fairs or after uh, school events or family science nights at schools or that kind of event off campus in a community where you're, you are the major thing that's going on. In other words, you can have an exhibit if you want, but the key thing about an exploration station is the conversation that you have with whoever is stopping by to talk with you. And uh, I think that's one of the things that when I'm training graduate students or postdocs or new folks, the line that I use is that communication begins with the ears, not with the mouth. And having to me, that's what I've learned in cooperative extension, and I was taught that very early here. And in contrast to you, I have not seen a whole lot of that in the kinds of science training um, that are coming out of organizations like AAAS or NSF, both of whom I admire greatly, and I work for NSF. Um, and I was a congressional science fellow with AAAS. But at least when I've been to their trainings, uh, I look on the agenda and I um, go through the trainings and I ask myself how much time is spent on training people how to talk versus how much time is spent on training people to listen. And I think it's telling that the elevator speech gets much more attention than the elevator listening. <laughs> That's a really good point. I mean, I learned it from uh, listening to a book on hostage negotiation and that uh, the whole idea of hostage negotiation used to be a very strong arm set of demands that when it switched to uh, more empathy and listening and understanding why somebody has a problem, that it made all of the negotiation more uh, successful. And I think part of this is um, when you're talking the 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 idea is, oh, my communication must be clear and crisp and understandable, and therefore I'm going to change what people know, and they will be better informed. <laughs> and that's true, and that's important. Um, but it's not necessarily persuasive, nor necessarily is listening persuasive. I mean, if all you had to do is listen, we'd, you, know, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking because we wouldn't have a controversial topic like biotech and food. Um, but I think you get further along 
because you're starting to develop a relationship and a rapport um, and that that helps with, as you mentioned, the empathy part. And rapport is the key word, right? And that's always what uh, others have described as almost a pipeline, that once you have developed a relationship, because you listen, and as scientists, we always, I say this all the time, we listen to debate each other. We enjoy that. But when we're talking to the public, we need to be listening to understand with the idea of, now that now that you know that I understand your problem and um, and I'm not just you know overbearing with what I think you know how can I specifically address your points and, and yeah. so it really does start with that and have you seen or do you, or do you feel that there is a sense that there's a change in the people who have concerns over the last 21 years like if you set up either uh, or 20 whatever years uh, either your uh, Wednesday night at the laboratory or exploration station. Are people coming with different concerns or is there a different attitude towards science and technology? Well, I, for me, the big change has been the peculiar um, verve that comes with anything having to do with the dairy industry in Wisconsin. So I have a job because of bovine growth hormone. And uh, that long ago passed out of the main thing. It's not that it got resolved. It got set in concrete. There were people that are this way and there are people that are that way. And it was no longer um, an issue in play. Um, And now it's dwindled away. And I don't even know if it's being used anymore on the commercial basis. If it is, it's very little. But at the time, it was really interesting to compare how people viewed BGH to chymosin, chymox chymosin, the first product of recombinant DNA technology in the U.S. food supply, wasn't BGH. It was this enzyme that helps make cheese. Um, And the parallels in the technology were remarkable. They were both started with genes from cows, bovine. Um, They were both transferred into microbes so that you could make lots of the protein. In the one hand, it was a enzyme like chymosin. On the other hand, it was a protein hormone, BGH, RBST. Um, and then things started, you know, they diverge a little bit because chymosin you put into milk and BGH you inject, which is a huge cartoon issue. Anytime you have a, a syringe and a needle, that's a cartoonist dream. Um, and then you have the whole social issue of what's this doing to the price of milk and the profitability of farming for large, medium, and small farmers. So that I learned a lot from just this doesn't seem to be solely about the technology. It seems to be about these broader issues and we don't have the same kind of, um, case example right now that is lighting people up the way that BGH did 20 years ago. How about uh, how about the newest innovations in gene editing? When you look at especially news, you know, recently of uh, humans being edited, you know, that kind of thing. Do you think that that has a potential to be as polarizing or do you think that we've come a long way as a society where maybe people will be a little more trusting of technology? Well, I remember the first time I was giving a talk about um, genetic engineering and how it bared, uh, how it bears on humans. And so this would have been about 
92, 93, something like that. And I asked the people in the room, how many people in here know somebody who was born um, as a test tube baby in vitro fertilization? Now, this is, um, what, 1977 was the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, in uh, the UK, if I remember correctly. So this was only going to be 14 or 15 years later. And I was astonished that three or four hands went up when I extended it, not just do you have a child that way, but do you have a cousin or a friend or anything? The, the fact that so many people in the room already um, had personal knowledge of this, people that would be in their houses for the holidays, that kind of thing. And so to me, that's how I'm looking at the whole CRISPR thing. You still have to get back to the idea of it's a baby and babies are cute. And it's the the big deal will be what happens when a child born with CRISPR doesn't work out as hoped as far as their biology. And that's, what's weird about the whole human editing aspect of we've seen our, this already in technology that people, at least from the IVF point of view, were very quick to go, wow, this is actually pretty good. Um, I don't know that that's what will happen with CRISPR, but the phrase that I use is that it went from being a sacrilege to a sacrament in the sense that before 1977, if you ask most people if this would be good, they'd react with almost a Mary Shelley, oh, this is very Frankenstein-y type of stuff. And after people saw what was happening and you have a little bundle of joy, it was no longer Frankenstein, it was a baby. And so that's possibly what will happen um, with CRISPR. I don't know. Um yeah, do you have an active uh, presence in speaking about gene editing these days? Is it part of your outreach component to kind of uh, maybe soften that transition a little bit? No, what I mostly do now, because I have um, the auditorium to do Wednesday night at the lab, is I'm mostly um, an impresario. In other words, I set up opportunities for other people to speak. So rather than me trying to learn stuff that I um, am not expert in, I go ask experts to give talks and then um, the talks are available on uh, live on a web stream that's high def. And then we put them on YouTube the next day. And then when, excuse me, uh, Wisconsin public television records many, most of the Wednesday night at the labs. So that's the approach that I've been taking because then it doesn't limit me to what my particular narrow expertise might be. Um, I'm at a university with 2,200 faculty and 7,000 academic staff and 12,000 graduate students and 2,000 <laughs> postdocs. Um, the numbers are in my favor, for, and as it would be at your place. Um, so that's how I look at it is um, I can provide a stage. I can provide a venue. I can provide a place where people can come and listen to and talk with the researchers in person and then um, through the web stream and through Wisconsin Public Television, I can share this with people all over the state and anywhere that people have internet access. 
We're talking with Dr. Thomas Zinnen. He's a biotech policy and outreach specialist at University of Wisconsin-Madison on mild stomping grounds. Uh, he works with the University of Wisconsin Cooperative Education System. And um, we'll be right back in just a moment. down I-70 between Kansas City and Denver for a long time. I could use a frosty beverage, and then you can drive. Let's pull off at the next exit. Wait, that's Grove 50. Isn't that the same road as Main Street in Hoxie, Kansas? Sure is. And you know what Hoxie, Kansas means? A&C Liquid Assets. A&C Liquid Assets. Western Kansas Happy Oasis, the buckle smack dab in the middle of the corn belt, where you can stop and get a belt of your favorite adult beverages. Oh, I love that place. I could really go for a crafty beer, or maybe we could buy some stuff to make some cocktails. Later, that is, when we safely get to Denver. That's right, and you won't find any of those Smirnoff products there. Why not? Doesn't Smirnoff make popular price spirits and libations? Well, they do. But they also recently ran that pandering, condescending ad with Ted Danza and that other person. You know, the one where they proudly announced that Smirnoff products are GMO-free. Yes, uh, that made me puke and laugh at the same time. But why would ANC Liquid Assets not carry Smirnoff because of that silly commercial? It's because they support farmers, and farmers make the grains that go into fermented adult beverages, and they support a farmer's right to implement the most useful seeds and production strategies they can find to sustainably grow their crop. That might include GMO seeds that Smirnoff doesn't support. It's a way of voting with dollars. Wow, that's a no-brainer. No Smirnoff for me either. Why would anyone in science or farming use a Smirnoff product since they actively campaign against farming with the guy from Three Men and a Baby? Caught me. <laughs> I think he looks like Anderson Cooper's dad. But that's the place where I want to burn my hard-earned beverage dollars, A&C Liquid Assets. A&C Liquid Assets? Conveniently located, almost sort of exactly between Denver, Kansas City, Colorado Springs, and Wichita, at 1043rd Street in beautiful Hoxie, Kansas. Check them out on Facebook at ANC Liquid Assets. Welcome back to the podcast. We're talking today about extension and outreach in biotechnology, and we're speaking with Dr. Thomas Sinnon from University of Wisconsin. So, uh, Tom, you know, some of the other, what are some of the other uh, current things that are happening with respect to your um, work, specifically maybe in the state of Wisconsin? Is there anything else other than dairy that are really hot button issues? Yeah, some of them um, are water, and you don't think of water as necessarily a biotechnology um, issue, but it's groundwater. And groundwater, in, from at least two major points of view, one is uh, 
large scale pumping of groundwater out of the ground and either into town or onto farm fields. And so you have the issue of irrigation um, and that now gets us back to crop science as to what can we do to reduce the demand for water and make better use of water out of the ground um, and still be able to grow crops in a environmentally okay and profitable way. Uh, the other issue with groundwater is uh, manure contamination, especially in the karst area in northeast Wisconsin. Um, so you have this another biological tie into groundwater, and that is uh, manure management and what can we do to reduce the impacts of uh, uh, dairy manure in particular and keeping the groundwater clean under those regions. So uh, those are, that's actually one thing that actually forks two or three different ways. And yet it all circles back around to what we can do with uh, life sciences. Another area is bioenergy. And we have the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center here that uh, UW-Madison co-leads with Michigan State University. And they have 12 or 15 other different universities around the country and around the world that they partner with. So they're looking at um, a full range from the molecular to the environmental and ecological aspects and the economic analyses of how do we grow crops that we can turn into fuels and specifically into biofuels, liquid fuels, excuse me. Um, Cause the whole idea is we need liquid fuels if we're going to address the issue of how we're going to run our cars and trucks and buses and all that good stuff. So those are some interesting angles that, for example, the bioenergy shifted from uh, when I started 27 years ago was in biopulping. Um, and that was how to make better use of the wood chips that are converted into paper pulp. And that's a big deal because it's a very energy intensive process. Now the focus is on how do we use what we know about biology to grow crops in a better way and then to convert the stover, the lignocellulose, not just the starch, into liquid fuels. So I, I think that's a, been a very interesting thing to watch over the last few years. One of the other places where you have a pretty big impact is in social media. And I see a lot of uh, your posts on Twitter, which are always pretty thoughtful and insightful. Um, and what some of the things you've been finding lately have been really pointing out a lot of the uh, hypocrisy inside policy and inside, um, especially in terms of regulatory uh, hypocrisy. And, you know, what are some of the things that you notice with respect to biotechnology that really um, make you scratch your head with respect to how it's regulated? Well, one of the fundamental questions that people ask about any new technology, and they certainly were asking about um, gene splicing technology from the get-go back in the early 70s, was, is it safe? And of course, that's an impossible question to answer. And people don't like to hear that it's an impossible question, but it's like, well, as a scientist, I can't tell you if it's safe or not. I have to 
ask you, is it safe enough? You have to let me know what your threshold of acceptable risk is. And just getting that transition, having a conversation with people so that they can hear the difference between saying and asking, is it safe, to is it safe enough, gets you into a position where we're, we have two hands in our um, Libra, what do you call that, the, the scales of justice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not just a one-sided thing, and you have to – well, you don't have to, but part of my – job is to persuade people that um, they're much better off from personal decisions and in public policies if they start asking, is this safe enough compared to what? How do we know uh, how risky other things are? Um, How do we know and show and test how risky new things are? Because if you do it out of context, if you ask that question without having a comparison in mind, then you will always have the idea that oh, something bad could happen. And yes, that that's always true. And it gets back to a really old idea of sins of omission versus sins of commission. Um, you have to act if you're going to live. Um, sometimes we focus on bad things that people do. But there's also the idea that not to do something can be a bad thing. Um, so that's the uh, parallel from philosophy to a, that you can bring into public policy where you're asking, what are the alternatives that we're going to embrace? If we don't use this, then we have to do something else. And what are the relative risks and benefits of that other thing? that we hope to do or use. And I think the whole um, golden rice saga is one of the more interesting ones uh, going back, oh, 30 years. Um, And with the golden rice being announced in about 1999, here we are nearly 20 years after that um, and still having debates solely on or largely on um, issues that, are not necessarily comparative where you're asking what else are we not, what are we not going to do and what's the opportunity cost and what's the opportunity lost by saying we're not going to use these particular approaches. And and that always is the part that drives me crazy because if the opportunity lost is always seems like a really big one to me because I see the potential for what we can do with technology. The problem is that so many people have such a warped perception of what risk is that any number that's not zero is unacceptable. So you could say that there's, you know, basically, you know, look at especially at like pesticide use, um, the numbers are so low that they can't be biologically consequential. Yet almost weekly now we're seeing reports about, well, they did this detection and detected parts per trillion, so the sky is falling. And so how does that kind of uh, issue with uh, the public's perception of risk really shape those kinds of decisions? I tend to go back and tell the story of Bruce Ames, uh, who was at University of California, Berkeley, if I remember correctly, Um, because he was one of the first folks that I'm aware of, at least, that would start saying, okay, uh, synthetic chemicals can be dangerous, but so can natural chemicals. In other words, chemicals that are found that you go out and get from microbes and extract them. 
Um, and I think that story is helpful to remind people that just because something is synthetic, it's not necessarily bad. And just because something is natural doesn't necessarily make mean that it's good or benign. Uh, and he quantified those risks and from both the synthetic and from the naturally extracted. And that's a story that is, uh, that's an enduringly helpful story to me, at least in the way that I get to talk with people. Um, I think another aspect is we get used to risks that kill people every day. A new risk gets our attention much more so than an old one that's killing people every day compared to the new one that may or may not kill anybody or may kill very few people. And that is not limited to any technology. That's, that's something that is, seems to be part of how humans have worked for a long time. The risk of a new unknown is more formidable and scarier than something that we do that we have been doing for a long time. And that's also what concerns me when people say, Oh, this, uh, such and such has withstood the test of time because I think, well, that might be, but have you tested how safe or how unsafe these things are that you have been doing for a long time? Because if all you've been doing is using them and not paying enough attention to know how many people have been harmed by them, then you just have a something that's pretty dangerous that you've been using a long time. And I think lead is a good example of that, um, that, you know, here's this, element that people use for a long time. When I was a kid, you got leaded gasoline. Um, and it took a long time for the researchers and the epidemiologists to be able to convince people that this is not a good thing. And um, now we're to the point where we have lead as a major public health issue and something like Flint, Michigan gets our attention right away. That's a really good point because it's, it's uh, almost how people will freak out about Ebola, but they won't go get the flu shot. And, you know, certainly flu kills more people than Ebola and Ebola is someplace else. But yet, you know, folks around here still have a very um, warped perception of something new being unusual and scary. And I guess that's where we go back to something like CRISPR. You know, what is the easiest way for us to really roll it out in a way that won't be offensive to people that maybe we can capture their hearts and minds with it a little bit? Well, um, if you were to draw a cartoon of CRISPR and compare it to the cartoons that people drew um, at the time of Asilomar in 1975, you have a very different metaphor that's being used. You have a word processing metaphor for CRISPR that everybody is familiar with and has no Frankenstein um, aspect to it. But with gene splicing, you have, first of all, uh, the biologist chose to use the word chimera. Well, chimera is from Greek mythology where you have, for example, half man, half horse. Um, or the monitor, um, head of a bull, man of a hand, um, uh, body of a man. So just from the get-go, the whole vitalistic argument, the fact that you could take something from one species and put it into another species. And you're not just transferring something 
uh, physical or biochemical, you're transferring essence. That was uh, one of the things that I think made gene splicing a really tough issue. And I don't see that happening with CRISPR because there isn't that idea of transferring um, the essence of life, DNA, from one species to another. We're just going to go in there and do a little, you know, word processing. Um, Now, from a point of view of safety, I don't know that that necessarily makes any difference. But from a point of view of perception of safety, it certainly does. And that's why I think CRISPR has moved along um, with a speed um, through regulatory uh, pathways that gene splicing never did. And that's really a good thing, I guess, because we're able to at least be able to uh, have a starting point of how to talk to people about it. And the other big difference, though, is that scientists actually are talking about it. And folks like yourself, like Paul, um, are getting out there and, and engaging people in productive ways. But have you seen uh, maybe a change in the overall, not just scientists engaging, but um Science enthusiasts engaging, you know, especially you know, being on Twitter. Do you see more and more of that as being a potential agent for change that can help shape the perception of something like Twitter, or, um, like uh, CRISPR? Yeah, and I, I think the other thing that's to go along with what you're saying is um, when I was a congressional science fellow in two thousand two thousand and one, there were three members of Congress, and I think there's five hundred and thirty five members of Congress. 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate. Correct me if I'm wrong, but... No, you um, got it. um, And I think three of them considered themselves scientists at the time. And that was one of the questions. It's like, wow, why do scientists not become politicians and run for elected office? And I think what we saw last election three weeks ago was a remarkable number of scientists standing for office, running for office. Um, and I think that's a generational change in that um, people are more willing to um, make the, this part of public engagement part of what they do. I think the folks in the ag school have long done that. Um, I think it's now a broader mission of lots of folks. The NSF even talks about broader impacts. Uh, so I, I think that's where I see it differently. And just on our campus, uh, we now have a building. Well, first of all, my building, the building that I work in, opened in 1995, and we had two outreach labs dedicated. That was the first dedicated outreach space that I know of on this rather large campus. And then uh, eight years ago, uh, this December, um, we opened a building called the Discovery Building, and it has public science events every day. And so that's the kind of thing that I think is changing at least here at the Madison campus of the University of Wisconsin. And I think it's happening in a lot of places, um, to your point, that scientists are more willing to talk about what they do and why they do it and not penalize scientists who do public engagement. Um, There's a road to go yet on that, but 
it's far better days and right now than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it's even changed in the last three years. I, I just feel such a difference. And it could be because of efforts of you know folks like us that are trying to create that change. Uh, what is the margarine saga? Do you, I mean, is, what can I ask you about that? So when I started um, in 1991, my friend Ken Smith said to me, and he was working here at the Biotech Center and had been a reporter for the ag publications around the state of Wisconsin before he started here at the Biotech Center. Um, he said, uh, you'll want to know the margarine saga because it's parallel to what's happening. BGH isn't so much about biotechnology as it is about dairy. And here's the argument for that. And he went through the idea that in the 1870s, uh, Wisconsin switched from being a wheat state to a dairy state. The big thing in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s that you sold was butter, even more so than cheese. And margarine was developed in 1869 as an alternative to butter. And then in the 18, late 1880s, uh, some French scientists figured out how to make it not from beef tallow, but from vegetable oil. So now you have oleomargarine competing with butter. And the way that Wisconsin and many other dairy states responded to that was to try to ban oleo. And then when the federal court said you can't ban oleo, they said, well, we're going to ban yellow oleo because it's a consumer deception issue. You're making something that isn't butter, but making it look as if it is butter and you're deceiving consumers. So we could not buy yellow margarine in Wisconsin until 1966, 1967, something like that. And when finally we were allowed to have yellow margarine in Wisconsin, they put a tax on it, uh, so many cents per pound. And that money went actually to pay for the new animal science and dairy science building on our campus. That story serves to underscore how... It's not necessarily the new technologies that rile and royal the uh, consumers. It's larger issues of identity, existing uh, industries and ways of life, and that you got to deal with those issues as well as the issues of is this safe enough? Is it fair? Is it a fair product in uh, commerce? Um, and so that's why. When I get to talk to this group called Grandparents University, where we have grandparents come in with their kids that are seven or nine or 10 years old, I ask them to turn and talk to their kids, their grandkids, and tell them about making runs for the border to get margarine. Because <laughs> people in Kenosha or Racine County, or those are counties that are just north of the Illinois border here in Wisconsin they would drive down into Illinois where you could get yellow margarine and it's like, we're all bootleggers <laughs> and these little kids are just baffled I'm like, wow. And that's a story that's harder and harder to tell because uh, it's, you know, we're close to 2020 now. And even the grandparents are telling these stories as when they were young, eight or nine years themselves. But it's a, it's part of the lore among folks that do bio, um, do food issues here in Wisconsin to keep in mind 
what we've learned or haven't learned from the margarine saga. Yeah, see, I was in Illinois, and I was doing exactly the opposite trip because in Wisconsin, you could buy beer if you were 18. <laughs> so that was always the thing when I was in co- when I was in college. Which actually, do you remember where I first where I know you from originally? No. Oh, you were my first biology teacher in college. Where? In <laughs> NIU and DeKalb. Yeah, you were you were re- relatively new there, and uh, you were um, you were my first biology teacher. I think it was uh, biology. I think it was called two hundred five at the time. It was like a new biology track, and yeah, uh, yeah you might remember that. And uh, you were I remember a lot from that class. But one of the things was. Uh, we were talking about a lot about microbiology, and I always called it agar, not agar, and, and you uh, accused me of being British. Or Canadian. Or Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> but that's really funny because I remember back then pretty fondly about that place and that time. It was exciting to see you in Wisconsin another 12 years later when I ended up there. So one of the things I've heard about is this parable of the DNA tube. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, a friend of mine back in 1995 asked me if I could get together a bunch of little tubes that had highly purified DNA in it for them because uh, um, they're going to do an open house. They, he wanted to give DNA samples to people. And I said, sure. And so we bought a... Um, some highly purified salmon testes DNA, which is what you get from Sigma. And I started making these tubes routinely and putting a little label on them. And I would, and it says a sample of DNA from the UW biotechnology center. And I would hand it to people and even people that were in molecular biology, I'd hand it to them. They'd look at it and there's this little white thread in there and they'd go, and they'd say, what is this really? And I said, well, it's, it's DNA. It's labeled as DNA. It's like, no, 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 it can't be DNA. You can't see DNA. Is this just cotton? So out of that back and forth, that conversation, um, comes this parable of even though I labeled it from a moderately reputable source as DNA, people learned that DNA is too small to be seen. So, whoa, what are we going to do here? We have these competing ideas. Is it DNA? Is it not DNA? And I tell people, well, let's test that because that's what scientists do. And if you actually spell the word scientist with that second I into an E, you get scientist, and that's what we do. And then I suggest to them that, well, DNA dissolves in water. How are you going to test whether this is DNA, whether it might be cotton? So they learn to take a little sample, take a little bit out, put it in a drop of water, rub-a-dub-dub it between their fingers, and it dissolves. And then I asked them, so what are you going to conclude? And most people go, well, you told me the DNA dissolves in water. The stuff dissolves in water, therefore it's DNA. And I say, well, is DNA the only thing that's white and fuzzy and dissolves in water? How about that thing that you get at the county fair that's white and fuzzy? Oh, it could be cotton candy. It's like, yeah. So have we really proven that this is DNA or have we merely disproven that this is cotton? And for many people, not for all, but for many people, that's the first time they hear the difference between proof by deductive reasoning, which is what they learn in geometry class, and disproof by inductive experimentation, which is what most scientists do, or at least the scientists that I'm around. And that's still a really good parable for how 
the, the, the challenges that people face in sharing science with the general public, or in my case, PhD students who are getting PhDs in molecular biology still doubted it. Um, how you want to be able to be patient and go about with a, a parable approach so that people can get it and start getting it into their bones of their thinking. And that's what I um, enjoy the most is being able to share science as a way of probing the unknown of how you, not only what we know, but how we show what we know or best yet, how we test what we know. And often it's by disproof rather than proof. And we still have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty uh, to paraphrase Churchill, science is the worst of all, worst way to do it, except for all other ways tested so far. So <laughs> that's what I like about the DNA tube. It's a great It's a really, really great story and a great way to go out here today. If somebody wants to follow you on social media, I think your Twitter stream is highly recommended. Uh, where do we find that? Um, I think my Twitter handle is at TMZinnen, uh, T-M as in Matthew, Z-I-N-N-E-N. And you know, half of what I Twitter on is uh, biotechnology. The other half is just general things. So. <laughs> but um, but um, what about your program and extension program? Is there a web presence for that or any other place on online like the maybe the YouTube channel of some of the Wednesday night at the lab? Yeah, if you go to YouTube and Google um, in the YouTube uh, search bar, Wednesday night at the lab and spell night N I T E. Um, it'll take you to that channel. And then uh, if you'd like to find out more about what we do in science outreach um, here at UW Madison and by we, I mean several hundred people who do science outreach here, uh, you can go to science.wisc.edu. Um, and then for the biotech program, you can do biotech.wisc.edu and then go to the biotech uh, program there. Okay, well, thanks, Tom, very much for your time today. Um, thank you, listeners, for another week of talking biotech. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, give us a few stars or some critical feedback. All of it helps to make us a little bit better at what we do in sharing science. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.